Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, we're now accepting applications for a Network Catalyst Accelerator program. Founders in our program have gone on to raise money from Lux, Spark, A16Z, Slow, First Round, SUSE, Homebrew, Mavron, Obvious, NFX, Signifier, and many more. Learn more and apply at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Samir Kaji of First Republic Bank. Samir, welcome to the podcast. Eric, thanks for having me. So, Samir, we are talking on April, uh, mid-April. Uh, COVID has changed a lot of things in the world, uh, and the LP uh, and GP dynamic uh, and adventure is, is no different. What, why don't you talk about what you're hearing about how this is impacting the LP ecosystem, and then we could talk about the implications for what that means for venture. Yeah, well, you know, I think first maybe we want to take a, a broader view and, and look at um, just LPs in general, how they how they act during different cycles. And, you know, over the last 10 years, we've been in, in an era of economic prosperity. You can make the argument that, you know, it started to feel like that around 2012. And what we saw during that period was a growth in asset prices across the board, real estate, public equities, fixed income. And certainly, um, you know, we, we saw the upswing in, in valuation prices. When that happens and when you have all that capital sloshing around, you have a lot of money going into asset categories for people that are really hungry for yields, right? And so over the last, you know, decade or so, we started, started seeing more money go into privates. Uh, privates seem to be that safe haven to get a reasonable return, uh, whereas other asset categories seem to be a little bit more tepid. And fundamentally, we saw you know the big family offices be more active in terms of both investing into funds and also investing into uh, direct directly into companies. Through that period, however, you know we started to see some cracks last year, and we saw the yield curve inversion. We started to see cracks with the private markets, particularly with SoftBank. And generally speaking, it just felt like valuations relative to um, where companies were from a revenue standpoint, or certainly even from a gross margin standpoint, seemed completely misaligned, which usually happens when there's an abundance of capital in the markets. So where we are right now, it's almost like a train going 150 miles per hour and hitting a brick wall. Um, you know, we were all hoping, I think, for a soft landing where valuations would right size slowly, you'd start to have better corporate governance. All of that went out the window at the beginning of March when it, we all realized that the COVID-19 virus was going to be much, much greater in terms of impact to, to the world and certainly to the U.S. Uh, where do things stand right now? We've effectively you know, started at zero, meaning that unlike past recessions, the economy is at a complete standstill it's very difficult to assess and use past recessions as a proxy. The reality is recessions tend to be bespoke in nature. Many of the past recessions were because of structural and systemic issues. This one has some of those elements, you know, as I mentioned over the last, uh, you know, several years in terms of asset prices bubbling up, but it's really a global health crisis that's created the stoppage of the economy. 
everyone right now is generally trying to make sense of things. You know, how deep does this cut? How long does this last? When do we get to an economy that's even partially functioning? I think most people would agree with the fact that a fully functioning economy and a, and a true recovery is likely only at a point where a vaccine is introduced and shows efficacy. Based on you know current projections, that's probably 12 to 18 months away. In the meantime, can you prop things up enough? The government obviously has shown the desire to do whatever it can to prop up and keep some of these companies alive. Certainly the central bank has done the same with uh, monetary policy. But um, as things stand right now, I mean, I, I think we should expect one to three quarters of nothing, followed by a slow recovery through partial openings of the economy. And so from an LPGP standpoint, obviously it affects things in a very material way, both in terms of how people invest, how people allocate, and generally speaking, how companies are invested into. Let's get into some of those uh, implications directly. So let's start with the LP side. So if you think about um, an institutional LP, and I think this is something that's been discussed you know, through a, through a number of podcasts, and I know uh, folks like Beezer Clarkson and, and Chris Duvos have been pretty vocal, but a lot of the institutional LPs, the endowments, the pensions, you know, the larger foundations they all have asset allocation strategies. And the al- asset allocation typically is a percentage-based thing where X amount goes into publics, X amount goes into natural resources. And then there's a, a percentage that's set aside for investing in privates. And that's typically 10 to 20%, un- which underneath includes things like private equity funds, venture capital funds. Many of those targets were bumped up um, you know, from 10% to 20% over the last few years because of that search for yield. And what's happened now is people went from vastly underallocated to in some ways being overallocated. And the overallocation happens when all of your other asset prices mark to market much quicker than your private. So public stock market, we saw the Dow go from, you know, almost 30,000 to 185 on March 18. While it's it's come up a little bit and we've seen a little bit of a bear rally over the last few weeks the expectation is for a lot of volatility and for a lot of those stock prices to, to fall fairly significantly over the last, or I'm sorry, over the next um, three to six months, meaning that many of these institutionals that were under allocated are now sitting on the sidelines and saying, okay, where do we construct our private strategy? How do we construct it? At what point can we get back in the game? Most are not going to do much in 2020. Uh, they will continue to back their existing managers that have performed. They will continue to paper some of the stuff that's already in the pipeline. Now, commitments may fall in those cases. They will take the opportunity to call non-performing managers. And, and I think that until there's visibility into the global markets, institutional LP money is going to be really, really tough to get. On the family office side, you know, people are just appreciably poorer than they were, you know, six, six months ago. I mean, both because of the public markets, but also the stress on some of the other asset categories. And particularly for those non-institutionals, the high net worth individuals, family offices that started investing post 2009, this is the first time they've had any systemic shock to the system related to the private, private market. It's going to take some time, of course, for the private markets to, uh, to reprice and I actually think some of the main challenges are not going to be just the paper repricing 
through, um, you know, the quarterly, you know, reports and what we see at year end. But it's really at that next round of capital that comes in or doesn't come in in, in 2021. So net net, look, I, I think the headline everybody knows it's going to be a, a challenging fundraising environment. I think it's going to be a lot worse than people are giving it credit for. Someone had a survey the other day on Twitter where you know the question was, "How long do you think there's going to be a recession?" And 73% of the respondents, which you know I think there were close to 2,600 respondents said that they expected this recessionary environment to last four quarters or less. I think that's hard to envision given that a full functioning economy is still 12 to 18 18 months away. And is that, you know, almost 100% because we won't have a vaccine? I.e. if we did have a vaccine, do you think things would go back to normal or at least we're, we're structurally sound enough to recover? I think I think you know it's a, it's a good question. Now, the way I would sort of pose it is, you know, absent of that vaccine, are people going to go to sporting events and sit with sixty five thousand other people? Are people going to go to movie theaters, even if there are therapeutics out there that help? We don't see those that that type of consumer behavior happening until there's a vaccine. I don't see consumer spending. I don't see corporate spending until we have visibility into a more medium, intermediate, or long-term future. And so um, I do believe that we'll have a partially functioning economy, but that doesn't help. That doesn't help with capital flow. It doesn't help with the bank's lending. It doesn't help with people spending money. It doesn't help with overall GDP growth relative to what we've seen you know, prior to COVID. So um, yeah, fundamentally, I think that a vaccine is necessary for us to really start recovering from the bottom. Now we're, we're starting from a really tough place. So, you know, I think the next quarter is going to be tough. I think the quarter after that, you start to see some reopening of the economy, but you're still probably at 30% functional. And then what you hope over time is that 30% becomes 50 to 70. And then once you have a vaccine that has true efficacy and doesn't have, you know, and is available on, you know, across, you know, mainstream America and the world, at that point, you'll start to see a little bit of a recovery cycle. But if you fast forward and play this out, we could be looking, you know, really at 2022, when we start really seeing the the restructure of the economy and the rehabilitation of it. Even before COVID was, was even on people's minds, VCs had been calling, you mentioned asset prices, VCs have been calling for a correction or been scared of correction for, for quite some time. Bill Gurley talked about it, there are others too. Does this does that mean that you know, barring COVID, uh, something else would have would have come up? Uh, or how how do you think about is there just some sort of natural cycle of hey, when things have been so good for so long, it's it's just it has to correct itself? Or uh, how do you think about that? Well, look, I mean, COVID fast forwarded everything to a point, and it, it created that brick wall, right? Absent that, um, do I believe that we would have seen something? Yeah, I think so. I mean, typically speaking especially early stage uh, markets tend to be lagging uh, relative to bigger macros. For example, you know, in 2020, if we saw, if you continue to see the, um, the reaction the public markets did for a lot of these companies with low gross margins, that would affect growth stage investing, which in turn would then, you know, re- react to and, and, and impact, you know, the series B, C investing, then that would impact the series A investing, but it would take some time to get through the cycle that, that's what typically happens. And, you know, what also you know, tends to happen with these things is until capital is actually constrained from the top, meaning LPs not investing into GPs, things tend to be 
you know, really, really frothy. And, and I don't, I actually didn't anticipate much changing in 2020. I thought 2020 was going to be more of the same. And I really do think, you know, had it not been for COVID, that would have been the case. But all this has done is really fast forward something that was likely to happen, but it's hap- it's going to happen at a pace that no one expected. And any semblance of any soft landing for anything is completely out the window. But as I mentioned, there were, there were cracks in the foundation that started to appear really at the beginning of last year. How does this compare with, with 2008 or, or other uh, scenario, uh, scenarios or, or situations, you know, recessions in, in your opinion? Well, so if you look at 08, 09, right, that was a structural issue in the debt markets and in particular the mortgages and mortgage-backed security market. In, in that scenario, though, when everything did blow up and, you know, of course, we did see a government bailout and we saw the beginning of quantitative easing, you still had an economy that was at least functioning. People were people still had the ability to go out. People still had the ability. Now, whether they were or not was a completely separate issue, but you didn't have this veil of uncertainty of when, you know, people can safely even do those things. And so we are starting from a point right now that it's going to take longer to start start to rehabilitate the system. You start to rehabilitate when you get people back to work, when you have businesses that can reopen. And as I mentioned before, I think that we are going to have partial functionality for an extended period of time, after which the rehabilitation starts uh, afterwards. In many cases, if you look at venture, a lot of what happened leading up to, you know, actually, you know, 99, 2000, and even 2001 is similar to what we're seeing right now. So what I mean by that is if, if you were around in the 90s um, and we were really had this massive lead up in terms of the number of funds, the number of companies, the prevailing metric at the time was what do you need to get funded and what do you need to get to, to have a public offering? And it wasn't revenues. It was typically eyeballs, right? The more eyeballs you had, it was in some way a view that that was the metric that would actually you know, perceive and pretend long-term success. In the last few years, the entire metric has been really top-line revenue for most companies. And the faster you grow, the faster you can raise the next round, the faster you can raise the next round, the faster as a VC, your uh, companies get marked up, your portfolio gets marked up, you get to raise the next fund, fund. And more importantly, the later, you know, the faster your company grows, the more likely there's going to be an exit that is going to return some multiple, but both in both eras, they didn't speak to the fundamental issue of, are these companies actually sustainable companies with good business models? Uh, You know, over the last few years, you can say that it's been a lot of bad governance around things like unit economics about growth. That's been responsible. And, And again, these things happen when there's a lot of capital, but you know, the startup market is going to face some tough things. I mean, if you look at the last, I forget, there's a stat out there that nearly 40% of capital raised by companies goes to Amazon, Facebook, and Google, you know, to create that level of growth. Right now, we are in a place where a lot of companies, and most companies, I would say, have to completely retract and become, you know, wartime companies, right? It's, you know, cut back on burn. It is change your views on what is actually possible in 2020 from my revenue standpoint and just last long enough to get to the other side. The problem is what's on the other side could be a really difficult, um, you know, area for a lot of folks. If you haven't had revenue growth in three to four quarters, you're at a point where valuations have reset. 
Maybe you're anchored down by a large valuation in your last round pre-COVID, and then you have some debt on your books. You know, these are going to be some really, really tough things. And so, yeah, there are companies that, you know, have 12 to 18 months of cash that could be on borrowed time. Um, we'll see again, you know, in terms of what happens, I think the outcome for a lot of these companies is getting a bridge from their existing investors to come out of that rehabilitation period and show that there's long-term, you know, durability into, in the company's model. But, you know, fundamental to this, I, I think that we are in, just like we saw in 99 and 2000, we are going to have some really tough moments as a startup community, as a venture community. And I'll get to what I think is going to happen to the seed environment in a little bit. But um, 2020 is 2021 rather is going to be a very seminal year for a lot of folks in the uh, in the industry. And and again, there's plenty of silver linings here. I do think that innovation is probably in decade four or five of a multi-century revolution. And the way we do things and the way you know uh, what COVID has brought us is an awareness of our reliance on technology, but um, that doesn't mean we're not going to see carnage along the way. And, and how, how do and how should VCs re- respond to this? I mean, w- w- what does this mean for them? From a VC standpoint, if you have capital, um, you know, it's, I think it's a very reasonable thing to think that the next couple of years are going to be great years to, to deploy. Um, less companies likely will be founded, especially marginal companies. I think that um, you are going to see a valuation reduction, which helps from a return perspective, but it's too early to tell and say that's that's the case right now. Part of the reason is we don't know what the risk construct is. You know, as I said before, I don't know, uh, you know, I know what game we're playing sort of, but I don't know how long, I don't know what period in the game we're in. I don't know you know, when this game is going to end. And therefore it's very difficult to, for me to know how much time or how much energy to spend on, you know, within that game. And, and for a VC, that means how active are you going to be on new investments? Because even a 30% reduction in evaluation may not make up for a risk construct that is 70% more than what it was before. And so I think that for VCs and what I'm hearing from a lot of GPs is that 2020 is going to be a slow delivered year. I think LPs are also pushing for slower deployment. And then in 2021, late, maybe late 2020, early 2021, when we get some visibility into the opening up of the economy, when the end could be in terms of getting to, um, you know, past COVID, I think at that point, it's going to be a great time to invest. I think we'll have more visibility into, you know, trends. I think we'll have more visibility into the, uh, the risk elements related to the virus. And more importantly, I think you'll have better corporate governance at these companies who are now used to working in a more lean environment. Totally. And what does this mean for, uh, for emerging managers? I mean, it, it seems like it's just, you know, last, just a year ago, or just a few months ago, it was the best time ever to, to raise a micro fund. What, what does this mean for people trying to raise micro funds now? Well, you know, I, it, you know, it's debatable, right? So it's debatable to say that it was the best time. I think the best time was probably, you know, in 2010, 11, 12, and 13. We have seen people raise, um, you know, and, and look, if you look at the total amount of money raised by seed funds, it's less than $10 billion per year. So it's not a big amount. And there are, yes, there are 1,200, you know, firms in the U.S. that are seed funds. 
I think it's tough, right, from a fundraising standpoint. Uh, and I think it was already tough in 2019 for those that were relatively uninitiated. So you know, two people coming together, operating experience, raising a full-fledged fund was tough, right? It, it often took 18 months. Most of the funds that we saw were, you know, sub $25 million. And, you know, the real, you know, difficulty was moving from being non-institutionally backed to institutionally backed. Institutional um, backers, generally speaking, started to slow down around 2016, 2017 in terms of brand new investments. They were still doing them, but the bar was higher. They had their existing portfolios they had built. The problem now for even funds that are going on fund two or fund three is a lot of your portfolio was invested into new new companies in the 2000, let's say, 14 to 2018 timeframe. We are now for seeing the first stressors, right? Um, both in terms of you know the decrease in valuations, but the increased casualty rates, and certainly as you know companies raise a Series B or Series C, at best they're highly dilutionary, and so you have to rework your dilution models and your ownership models, uh, you know, at, 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 in what you expect at exit. Um, and the worst case scenario is you get completely washed out, and so. A lot of the folks that were able to raise new funds based on paper gains are going to see a, a stark, you know, decrease in terms of real paper, uh, you know, value, but also just what it means from the a long-term liquidity outcome standpoint. And that, you know, we're not going to start seeing a lot of that um, fully flesh out until 2021. And a lot of LPs, I think, rightly are saying, hey, we're going to see how this plays out. We want to see how those seed you know, portfolios that we invested in, in 2014 to 18 or 19 are going to fare in this environment. Are those managers who can't play defense anymore through that, you know, because the reserves are, are completely extinguished, are they going to make it? Now, at the end of the day, though, right, you know, and, and this is what I tell everybody, it's very hard to time venture. Like, when should you invest? When should you not invest? Even in the best times, it's really like a, a quarter of funds, you know, in any vintage year, typically provide acceptable returns. Uh, when you take in liquidity risk and you take in, you know, public market equivalents and, and really the top 10% tend to be the ones that do exceptionally well and make people really happy for their, you know, illiquid investment. That's going to be the same right now. Um, it doesn't change. It, there's just going to be less managers that are going to be able to raise capital. That 10% still is going to be exceptional. And, you know, I, I'd say for any fund that's raising 2020, if you're within that top 10%, you're going to do really, really well. You may do slightly more well than you've done in, in, in higher markets. So if you look at 2008, 9, and 10, the top quartile was in the 25% range. If you look at, you know, 2000, you know, let's call it 13, you know, 14, 15, when valuation started to creep up, you know, it's still, it was still top quartile in the 19 to 20% range. So it's just people do slightly better in really good markets, but the vast majority continue not to perform relative to what's expected from an LP standpoint, which for a seed fund is a 3x net. Totally. And maybe we can just zoom out a little because you, you've been covering the, you know, the emerging uh, micro fund trend for, for quite some time. What do you think you believe about that, that category may be different from, from mainstream? How, how is that category performed over time? What, what are the learnings that we've you know, had over the last you know, decade plus? When you unpack some of your, some of your biggest lessons from, from studying that so closely? 
Well, I, you know, I'm, I'm generally very bullish on, you know, smaller funds, uh, not just because they're small, but I think the behavior within those firms tends to be more congruent with better outcomes. Large firms, you know, the lar- of course, there's the mathematical issue with the larger you get, the tougher it is to provide the returns, the more pressure you are on from a deployment standpoint, the more partners you have. In good times, things can always be, things are tough in bad times some of the toxic behavior that can exist at some of the bigger funds get worse. And so generally speaking, I like smaller firms. I think that, you know, again, the top 10% will outperform the top 10% of big firms. Now, some of the challenges, of course, are, you know, all we can look back on is from 2014 to 2020 was the biggest expansion with about 150 firms coming to market every single year, in some cases, slightly more than that. In terms of financial outcomes, All we can look at is, generally speaking, because you're investing at the early stages, are paper outcomes, right? So like, what is the TVPI? What's the IRR? Those all look really, 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 really good. Now, a year from now, some of those will not look not so really, really well. I think fundamentally, though, you know, as a small firm manager, you have a better opportunity to provide a real outside return, you know, a 5x, 10x, 15x. And we've seen that, right? We've seen the first generation managers. But what what I think is going to happen is we're going to start to see some consolidation. Um, Consolidation meaning attrition, I should say, is probably more accurate term over the next couple of years. And I think that a lot of small firms are going to have to realize, is this something that really makes sense for them for the long run? I mean, does it make sense to raise a bunch of $10 million funds if you can't scale past that in the, in the next, let's call it two to four years, but even going back and and maybe zooming out, as you said, you know, the things that I've learned are one, these are really hardworking people. The whole aspect of people are on a golf course. I can tell you seed managers are not on the golf course. I get emails on Saturdays. I get emails on Friday nights. These are people that fundamentally have a passion for backing early stage entrepreneurs. And many of them, do have certain superpowers that allow them to add, you know, real value at the early stages of the company. It's not their fault that their capital base doesn't allow them to continue to, uh, you know, invest in, in further rounds outside of maybe SPVs, but I do think it impacts the return model. And, and that's going to be a tough thing for a lot of people to, uh, to deal with over the next, um, you know, whatever period this COVID lasts. Um, the, the the funds that have reached institutional uh, backing, I think are going to be in a good place. I think they're going to continue to be able to, assuming that there's a level of returns that they can show and that their portfolios aren't getting hit that hard, they'll continue to be able to raise in an environment where valuations are down and there's less competition around the table. I don't think that if you have 50% of the market going away, that the amount of capital go- that goes into seed goes down. I think it just becomes more consolidated with fewer managers. Totally. And are, are, are LPs looking for fundamentally different strategies in this market? Or, you know, does it mean that, you know, does it mean anything for sort of the specialist versus generalist debate? Or how, how do we think about uh, the types of funds that, that will raise money, you know, not just size, but also strategy? Well, well there's been a, a continued shift toward specialization, uh, investing in specialized managers, right? I think if you look at the first generation of micro VCs or seed managers, most of them were actually generalists. Um, there's a few exceptions like a, a Ribbit Capital, which is more fintech, but the vast majority were generalists and they had this 
you know, amazing opportunity to fill a gap between uh, angel and series A funding, that opportunity fundamentally is not there anymore, right? I mean, there's plenty of seed managers that are covering between, you know, angel and series A, and there's now pre-seed and there's seed and there's post-seed and there's seed prime and, and, and the list goes on. And so in terms of determining, like, what is your advantage that creates a probability for a better outcome? I think LPs generally look at and say, is it, number one, is it like, what is your superpower? Is it within a certain sector? Do you have a domain expertise there? Do you have a network in there that can add real value to these companies, but also allow you to identify and win the best companies within that sector? Number two, do you have something about you that, you know, creates a moat, right? Something systemic. And so a lot of people, you know, I remember in the, in 2014, 15, maybe even 16 and 17, heard the message about differentiation, but very few had authentic differentiation, which is like, why do you see the best companies? Why do you win them? And then how do you actually add tangible value once you've invested? LPs are really digging into those things right now and saying, tell me your version of counting cards, right? So if you play blackjack, you know, the chance of winning is actually pretty low. It's, it's even lower in terms of, you know, how Vegas or any, card house will put the, uh, you know, the different payouts. And so even if you play by the book, your, you know, your chance of winning is sub 50%. If you, for people that have counted cards, they don't have a hundred percent chance of winning, but maybe they have a 53% chance of winning. So what LPs are really looking at for when they work with GPs is what is your version? What is that comparative advantage that gives you the ability to increase the probability of a three X type of outcome happening from whatever, you know, from what most managers have, which is a really low percentage to something that's significantly higher. And that's, you know, I think a theme that we've been seeing for a few years, I think that theme is going to be, you know, pressed even harder in today's timeframe. Um, and I, I think that anyone raising a fund should say, like, do I really have that? Is there something special about me? And be brutally honest in terms of, is there durability to that comparative advantage? And that's, and, and that requires um, anybody to really have pressure test themselves. And that's not the easiest thing because we have our own biases. We have our own desires to create something, but understand that, you know, LPs today and LPs tomorrow, tomorrow being what's called the next year are going to require a hell of a lot more than they did, you know, in the, you know, from the last few years. I'm curious for your views on the future of venture broadly and not just post COVID, but also just where, where venture was going. Like I just had Alex Bangash on the podcast and he, he talks about his future is venture. He doesn't, he doesn't believe in sort of like, you know, people reinventing benchmark or Sequoia, just sort of that, that's equivalent of like web, web 1.0 models. He, he's interested in like fundamentally disruptive models. I like what YC did or, you know, what entrepreneur first is doing. So he's interested in things like studios or, um, API like funds that are leveraging different data sources. Like if you had access to Stripe's data or Slack's data or you know Shippo's data or something, things like like Saster that are leveraging communities or unfair marketing distribution plays, but things fundamentally different from how you know ventures looked in the past. What's your take on that on the on the future of venture? Well, I think a few things. So if you look at the last, let's call it, you know. 15 years of venture. I mean, and even going past that, I mean, venture has not changed much, right? It's still the two and 20 model, the investment, you know, uh, thesis is generally speaking are, 
you know, what they are, you know, the models in terms of how people make decisions have been the same. I think two of the most uh, important things within venture over the last 15 years has been YC and then probably Andreessen and Horowitz and their model of, you know, servicing companies in a different way. What we've seen in the last few years is also um, the doubling down within uh, the data ecosystem, meaning that more venture firms are looking at how do they leverage data in ways to actually create better decision-making, perhaps uh, reduce the number of heuristic biases that we all have. And, you know, we've seen firms like Goodwater, Signal Fire, Tribe, uh, all leverage some level of data to be able to make decisions either from a sourcing standpoint or helping companies. I, I, so I think we'll see more of that. You know, the problem with data, right, is, it's in the eye of the beholder. Uh, when you create data models and methodologies, biases are often programmed into them. And, and so, um, you know, we are going to have to see more of an evolution with that. I do think that's one thing. I also think you have um, a more of a democratization in venture, meaning that you will have people of all socioeconomic backgrounds, start firms, investing companies that may be aligned with their background, their ethnicity. Um, we'll see more, uh, you know, I, and I'm hoping this happens, we'll see more of a, a mixed gender influence uh, in investing. I think all of those type of things, and of course, you know, as Alex, you know, it sounds like you mentioned studio models, which are hard to scale and they're not easy to do. And I think very few can do it right. But all of these things, I think, will help permeate a positive shift in, in terms of venture now the vast majority of venture will still be venture, right? People will raise money. They'll have their portfolio construction and they'll put money into companies and their help, um, you know, their assistance uh, that they provide to these companies in many cases is going to be marginal. But, you know, we are seeing some things that, that I mentioned that I think are very, very positive for the ecosystem that I think may have a slight pause, you know, in the meantime, while, you know, the fundraising markets are, are so treacherous but we will emerge, um, you know, from it. And I, I think that the continuation of some of the things that we've seen will, you know, reemerge sometime in 2021. Do you expect the LB ecosystem to fundamentally change in terms of whether it's family offices or in a post COVID world, uh, how do we expect it to be different? Is it going to go back to what it is, was pre COVID or how do you think they, they evolve? Well, it, it all comes down to the type of LP. Yeah. I mean, I think generally speaking, people have short memories, um, and, you know, once things feel like, you know, things are moving away from a risk construct that seems uncertain and, you know, markets are not volatile anymore, people tend to start feeling good and people like to invest on the way up. And so, yeah, I do think that money is going to start flowing in, um, you know, and, and look, I mean, people tend to rationalize on the way up, you know, things are, things are usually better than what they really are, at least in people's minds. And when people have a lot of capital that they need to deploy, people aren't going to put money in their mattresses. You know, when their public market equities, when their real estate assets all go up in value, they are going to invest in private assets. Um, that's where alpha has historically been found at the levels that we've seen it, uh, certainly in, in, the, in the top quartile and top decile of venture and top quartile and decile of private equity. So I do think it's going to happen. I just think it's going to take some time, right? It's going to take time to heal, um, you know, both economically, but also heal from a mental standpoint. I think the mental healing will happen first. I think the economic healing will take a little bit longer. 
And, and then that's why, you know, based on where I am right now, I'm prognosticating that 2021 is probably the earliest before we, I'm sorry, 2000, early 2022 is the earliest before we see things really go back to normal. Totally. There's been the saying that there's a, there's too much money in, in the asset class. And I'm curious to unpack that. Does that mean that it's harder to, you know, it's worse for individual VCs, but I guess, is it worse for the entire asset class as a whole because it, or for the output that, uh, that startups make if there's too much money in venture? Because my, my thought is, you know, the more money in venture, that means the more startups that could be created, that means the more shots on goal. Yeah, maybe for the sort of incremental VC, they, they do individually worse, which is why they, they want, you know, less competition. But for everybody else, for, for the ecosystem, you know, there's more innovation created. Is, is that incorrect? What do you think? Well, I, I, you know, there's two ways to answer that, right? So from a, you know, return perspective, and then there's, you know, is it a net good for the ecosystem? I think you can make the case that overall, it's a net good for the ecosystem. You have more companies that are getting getting funded. You're more people that are willing to be, you know, entrepreneurs and founders. You know, the counter to that is that, you know, when so much money is sloshing around and thrown at companies, uh, you know, bad governance tends to follow them. Right. Um, you have capital stacks that tend to drive business models. So you have the LP capital model driving the GP capital model that you have then driving, you know, company behavior. That to me is not a great thing. And we've seen some of that for sure over the last, um, you know, decade or so, and especially the last few years. But in terms of, you know, is it, you know, long term a good thing? Yeah, I think so. Because I think more, you know, successful companies, you know, tend to get funded. I still think that there's probably 50 to hundred companies a year that really drive, uh, you know, things from a return perspective to, to VCs of which maybe five to 10 are Kingmakers. Um, so, you know, from a you know, net standpoint, I, I think it's okay. Um, it's not always great. And there's certainly, um, you know, things that, you know, would say that you shouldn't have that much money because then do like 19 different companies get funded with the same business model? Do you have marginal companies get started instead of people working on really hard and interesting things that solve bigger problems? Yeah, sure. You get some of that, but you know, overall, I think that's fine from a return standpoint. Look, I, you know, I don't really care about every single VC firm earning a three X net. That's just not going to happen in, in the best of times. You, you cannot look at venture as an index. It's just not an index. So, you know, can, you know, can venture support, you know, 50 billion in funds raise, uh, you know, per year? I think so. I think, I think so. I think we're seeing, you know, exit sizes that are gone bigger. I think you're, you're seeing technology, technological ubiquity. Um, I think you're seeing every big company, especially right now, realize that their reliance on technology and a technology, technological adoption is has to be much bigger than it was in the past. So, yeah, I do think that, um, you know, having 50 billion versus 30 billion is probably doable. I didn't think that maybe 10 years ago, I think that's probably the case right now, but again, it's just like everything else. I mean, the top 10% are going to do exceptionally well, you know, the, the next 15% are going to do like acceptable, right? It's an acceptable return. And then you have 75% that are just going to, poorly perform in any, any vintage year, regardless of the market cycle. Are, are, you know, a lot of these sort of nano funds, so to speak, you know, $5 million funds, you know, the Ryan Hoover weekend fund, you know, Shrug VC, you know, and, and many dozen, and those are the best ones, but you know, all the ones that, that, that raised, are you going to, are they effectively just going to merge or what's going to happen to them as they're trying to raise their, their fund too in this, uh, in this environment? 
Well, I mean, you know, that's, it's going to be bespoke, right? So you, you named a couple of them, I think very highly of, and I think they're really good managers and they're thoughtful and they have a very dedicated focus in terms of what they do. Um, now, now they may be in a spot a year from now where they need to raise their next fund instead of going from, let's say five to 10 to 30, they go five to 10 to 15 or 20 or even less. Maybe they, they have a, a flat, <laughs> a flat fund. And, and I think those folks are just going to have to decide if that's something that they are willing to sign up for. I think merging funds, generally speaking, is is tough. You know, investment uh, ideas are different. Investment models are different. Personalities are different. We've seen latch on partnerships work really, really poorly. I, you know, I think I alluded to the fact earlier about one of the big problems at big funds is you have a lot of different personalities investing in different things. And when you run into tough environments, what happens is people don't want to get voted off the island. And so you have a lot of self-preserving behavior that exists. And so I don't think we'll see a lot of merging. I think we'll see maybe some where it's like it makes total sense. And we saw with, um, for example, Bonfire um, Ventures in LA, where we, we saw two GPs come together. I think that's more of the exception than the rule. But I do think that we are going to move into reality where some of the nano funds will remain nano funds for much longer than they anticipated. And then it just becomes a decision point of, is the opportunity cost worth it for me to sit on another $5 million fund for another two years? You know, can I put food on the table? And, you know, does it make sense in, in terms of how I want to support my entrepreneurs or do I want to then, or do I want to do something else? And I think a lot of people will decide Hey, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, either I don't want to raise another five to $10 million fund or, you know, raising a $30 million fund in a, in a really uneven environment may take two or three years and may take a year for me to even get to a first close. And I don't want to be on the sidelines for a year. And therefore, you know, I'll work, you know, my existing portfolio, you know, I'll continue to do what I need to do. But usually for a seed fund after three or four years, there's not really much to do, right? Your companies have either raise the next round of financing and now they have other people on the board or they've died. And so your, you know, the, the amount of work you're doing at that point is very little. And so I think a lot of people make those tough decisions and I think that's okay. Again, I think that, you know, the good funds and the people that are long for the business will continue to stay in and will, con- you know, and there's still going to be plenty of capital to support those seed stage companies. Again, it's only, 8 billion, 8.1 billion was raised by, you know, seed funds in 2019. Even if half of that, you know, went away from in terms of the number of managers, I still don't think that 8.1 billion goes to 5 billion. I still think it's probably between six and eight. Um, It's just that some of the seed firms that have performed are just going to get a little bit bigger. Yeah, totally. There's this broader conversation about uh, equity and debt, venture debt. How, how do you think about, you know, ClearBank is doing some interesting things. How, how do you sort of think about uh, that, that, that conversation and how that evolves uh, in the future? What, what ClearBank's doing or, or things like venture debt in general, the role of it? Well, I, I you know, generally speaking, look, I, I, you know, I was a lender for 11 years at uh, SVB back from 99 to 2010. And I saw the good and bad. I mean, the whole case for venture debt and, and for some of these sources is non-dilutive capital, low cost of capital. And, you know, the ability to provide, you know, extended runway to, to reach milestones that could, you know, either, you know, provide for a larger valuation or at least provide, um, you know, the time to hit some, you know, meaningful metrics that allow you to raise capital from an outside lead. You know, generally speaking, I think that, 
debt in itself can be good, but it should not be viewed as free money. It should not be viewed as a lifeline. When things have lack of visibility, you as an entrepreneur don't know if you know a slug of venture debt is going to serve as an anchor or a lifeboat. And more often than not, what we find is, you know, a company, let's say a company raises 10 million, they take $3 million in venture debt, they draw it down, they cut burn, but you're really not cutting the burn from your venture debt payments. When you're raising that next round, it could be an uneven environment. You've had three or four quarters of missing your projections or you've recast your projections significantly, and you're trying to raise money with, you know, $3 million in debt that in itself can be really difficult, especially if you have the additional anchor of, you know, a large valuation in your last round. So I think companies should take it if they have visibility to what things are going to look like. I don't think that if you don't have that visibility, you should just be drawing down debt. I think it's too dangerous. It amplifies return, but it amplifies risk pretty significantly too. ClearBank and some of the other providers that are doing non-traditional venture debt that are tied to some level of formula, I think are, I'm much more sanguine on. So for example, if I'm borrowing against, you know, accounts receivable, I'm borrowing against recurring revenues that I have visibility into things like churn and renewal rates. I feel much better about companies using that because it self-governs itself. And I, I do think it's a significant part of getting through, you know, what could be a rough, you know, 12 to 18 months. But I would say that, you know, as a portfolio company, as a founder, as a CFO, look at the type of debt, you know, properly assess, you know, where things may be for your company in 12 to 18 months. And while optimism should, you know, reign as your way of thinking, I think your um, model in terms of looking at things like debt should be based on realism, realism border, bordering on you know, pessimism or paranoia that like, what if everything goes wrong? What if the shit hits the fan? Do I want to be in a place where I'm beholden to my, you know, to my debtors? And so, you know, there's a place for it. I, you know, if you look at the last 20 years, I mean, venture debt's about 10% of the, the total amount of equity raised in a given year. I think that it's overused at times. And I think people should just be really, really careful in the mode of the debt, who they take the debt from, and the amount of, the, of leverage they take on during this time. Totally. With just, uh, with just f- five minutes remaining, I wanted to ask you, uh, what, what did we not cover that you think is, uh, you think is, is interesting or would be, would be good to talk about? Um, you know, the only, only other thing I wanted to cover is, um, you know, the government stimulus package. So over, you know, since March 27th, when it was announced that there was $349 billion going into small businesses, right? Small businesses under 500 what we've seen is this massive, uh, you know, in some ways run to the banks, right? Where people are trying to get their cut of the pie, uh, you know, well-funded startups and, you know, actually have the ability to do it. I mean, I think the affiliation rules have been um, clear enough now where people are comfortable. I've seen some venture funds and private equity funds get it. What I'd say is that outside of a legal standpoint, right? You know, you are making cell certifications on things that if found incorrect later could lead to civil and, and criminal penalties. That's one thing, but there's also a reputational risk that I think anyone takes. If you are found to be a well-funded startup and uh, you have 15 months of cash, you just raised 50 or hundred million dollars, or you're a venture firm, 
it's important to understand that the, taking money from the government is not a is not is not a free lunch. Um, you know, those things become part of public domain if it's found out that you took money and potentially took away from a needy business, a needy business that otherwise would go out of business and would have to furlough all their employees, you have to really think through the risk return of that. Um, I say this because, you know, I have friends at all of the other major banks and they were seeing, you know, well-funded companies and, and, you know, um, funds of different sizes apply for it. I'm not here to say whether you should or shouldn't do it. Um, the rules are what they are and they're, they're, largely written in a way where most um, most of those are eligible, but do think through the um, the reputational aspects. If in six months or a year you're found out and someone publishes a large list, that is not a great thing for, you know, an LP to look at. I mean, LPs could ask you, did you take money from the government? Um, I think that, you know, small companies could say, did you take money from us? And, and I think all of those things are, are things that should be closely considered when applying for this uh, PPP program. Um, is there any uh, any misconceptions you think people have about it or misnomers that are important to to cover up? Well, I think the misnomers are that it's free money, that it's easy. It's it, there's there's no strings attached. You know, there are things that you have to do. I mean, you cannot furlough employees after taking it, um, or you lose uh, you know the ability to forgive part of the loan. And if that's the case, yeah, you're, 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 you know, you've taken on more leverage on your books that you have to owe. Now the, the rate of, you know, the capital that you're, or the, 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 the amount you're paying on these loans is really small, but at the end of the day, um, you know, it's just not free money. And I think that's, that's the misnomer that we're seeing out there. Um, I guess today has been Samir Kaji of uh, First Republic. Uh, if you want to learn more about Samir, definitely follow him on, on Twitter. He's got a lot of great uh, writings on, on Medium as well. And his, his Twitter is just uh, Samir Kaji. Uh, Samir, any other plugs that you want to leave our audience with? No, no. I just, again, you know, I think the last thing I would just add is, you know, despite all the, you know, the short-term transient pain that we're all going to go through, we're all going to come out of this in a better place. And I do think that those innovation streams that are created post-COVID and during COVID are going to drive a ton of value. So, you know, again, it's just about how do we get through this period? How do we stay resilient? I, I think the next 18 months, 24 months potentially, are all about resilience versus, you know, growth and, you know, some of the other metrics that we had looked at in, in the past. Samir, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great episode. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.